Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss the science of peak performance and share actionable takeaways for how you can achieve your goals and spend more time in the powerful state of flow with our guest, Stephen Kotler. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, All you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we interviewed the godfather of influence, Dr. Robert Cialdini, and shared some of the most powerful lessons from the science and art of influence. Please note, this episode contains profanity. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance, and he's the author of nine bestsellers, including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold, and Abundance. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages, and appeared in over 100 publications, including The New York Times, Wired, Atlantic, Time, and The Harvard Business Review. Stephen, welcome back to The Science of Success. Good to be with you, Matt. How are you? We're super excited to have you back, and I'm doing well. I'd love to start with, I know you've produced so much fascinating work and bold abundance, some of my all-time favorites from your earlier collection, Stealing Fire, so interesting. But Art of Impossible really tackles a number of concepts that I think are so important. And I'd love to start out with a broad question that we can really sink our teeth into, which is this notion of being a peak performer. What does it mean to you to be a peak performer and what do we have to do to become peak performers? So I think there's a couple quick answers to that question, Matt. I mean, the first is that peak performance is nothing more, I guess, nothing less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. Human beings, we come with the capability for peak performance built in. It's a built-in feature of being human. Everybody is hardwired for peak performance. So it's really a question of just understanding how the system works and getting the system to work for you. Let's dig into that. Tell me about this idea that we are hardwired for peak performance and how do we end up getting in our own way? So in a simple way, the easiest place to start is with the fact that every human on the planet is hardwired to enter the state of consciousness known as flow. Flow is technically defined as optimal performance. It's a state where we feel our best and we perform our best and is literally a built-in feature of not even just being human, of at this point being a mammal, meaning the neurobiology, the hardwiring underpinning flow is present in all mammals and it's hyperdeveloped in humans. So the first thing is that 
flow is how we do peak performance and it's available to all of us. So that's sort of where it starts. If you want to take it a step further, you have to start with a weird thing, which is flow optimizes a whole bunch of stuff. If you look under the hood, researchers, psychologists, and neuroscientists have spent the past 30, 35 years, 40 years trying to figure out exactly what is flow great for, what is it optimized. And the list is fairly long. It's motivation, productivity, creativity, creative problem solving, all aspects of creativity, learning, grit, empathy, environmental awareness, and then it's a bunch of stuff on the physical side, strength, stamina, et cetera, et cetera. And the first question you've got to Ask yourself, when somebody gives you a list of this one state of consciousness does all this, you got to ask yourself, well, what the hell is going on? Right? Why is that even possible? It doesn't even make sense. And the answer is, once again, evolution. And evolution shaped human beings. And evolution itself was shaped predominantly by scarcity, scarcity of resources. And when resources are scarce, you have two options. You can fight to over dwindling resources or you can get innovative, get exploratory, get creative, get collaborative, get cooperative, and make new resources. So literally everything that is optimized by flow is all that stuff which we can use to either fight or flee over you know resources or get creative, get cooperative, work together, and make new resources. That's actually the full suite of our biology. That's the toolkit. So all that stuff that I just listed, that is the full kind of biological suite. Those are all the tools in our toolkit. And the interesting thing, you know, sort of asked about peak performance, and I think every peak performer intuitively reaches for the same tools because we're all biologically hardwired. So if you start talking to peak performers, which is what I've done for 30 years, about, hey, what it is that you're working on kind of thing, it's a very limited set of skills. Why? Because we're all drawn from the same toolkit. And the funny thing is, the tools, and this is what we're learning only over the past five to 10 years in a sense, is that, hey, it's a system. The system is designed to work in a certain order. It's designed to work in a certain way. And if you can get it working for you, this is peak performance. That's a really interesting notion, this idea that evolution essentially created the framework, the toolkit for performance, whether it's fighting, fleeing, being creative, collaborating, etc., and the journey for peak performance is really a journey about first understanding what our toolkit looks like and then learning yeah. how to use it for our own benefit. I always sit with the Flow Research Collective, and we train at this point. For those of you who don't know what the Flow Research Collective is, we're a research and training organization. We study the neurobiology of peak human performance. I think we're actually the largest peak performance research and training foundation in the world at this point. We, on the research side, we're partnered with USC, UCLA, Imperial College London, Deloitte, a whole bunch of other people studying kind of studying the neurobiology. And on the training side, we train everybody from the US Special Forces through Olympic athletes, through the general public, and we train a lot of people, like a thousand people a month on average. So we have enormous data sets on this sort of stuff, first of all. So it's one of the things that's really interesting is not only do every peak performer reach for these same tools, everybody reaches for these same tools and it's funny if you ask, where did this book come from? One of the places it came from was this work on flow because it's actually remarkably easy to train people up in how do you get more flow. It's just not easy to stabilize that turbo boost in everybody. Peak performers, like if you train up U.S. Navy SEALs in flow, they get it almost immediately and they start getting immediate results. 
a lot of other people start backsliding almost immediately. They'll get more flow, but they can't sustain it, which is incredibly frustrating. And it comes down to all the shit that flow amplifies, motivation, learning, creativity, et cetera, et cetera, everything we've been talking about. If your foundation isn't solid, you can't handle the turbo boost. This is another reason why a lot of people don't realize that they're optimized for peak performance because they'll get periodic flow in their life, but they won't realize, hey, this is reliable, this is repeatable because the other stuff isn't dialed in yet. I love that learning and this idea that it's much easier to get into flow states, but the challenge for most of us is maintaining them. Tell me a little bit about how we cultivate that solid foundation. What does that look like from a habits and routine standpoint, from an execution standpoint, and how do we use that to sustain our flow much longer? So I'm going to give you big picture look. We're going to drill down a level, and then we're going to drill down a level. But the big picture look is this. When you're talking about peak human performance, you're talking about the motivation required to get into the game. You need goals because it tells you where you want to go. You're going to then need grit um, because it's how you sort of sustain things when that motivation runs out. You need learning because it's what allows you to grow and continue to play. You need creativity, creative problem solving, because it's how you steer, especially if you're going after the kind of high, hard goals, so-called impossible goals where there's not really a clear map between where you are and where you want to get to. You have to have creativity and then you need flow to sort of turbo boost the whole equation. So that's the whole system. That's what we're looking at. And I said it starts with motivation and motivation is sort of a catch all term for a lot of different things. But here's what the research shows basically says that at the front end, you don't have to start here, but it's really hard to work around this. You sort of got to start with basic safety and security stuff. Meaning the first motivator that really matters, normally we're going to talk most of our time about intrinsic, internal motivators, but you've got to start with an external. The data is pretty clear that it's very hard to achieve peak performance if safety and security issues are still a concern. And this is sort of Daniel Kahneman's research more than anybody else, but Daniel discovered that happiness and well-being and productivity and performance and all that stuff moves in lockstep until we make about $75,000 a year. That's enough in today's economy to cover, depending on, like he was measuring it mostly in city environments where people's rents were a lot higher, but it's enough to sort of pay your rent, pay all your bills and have a little left over for discretionary spending. And once you're there, external motivators are no longer going to get you more performance. They stop working, which is not to say they stop motivating us and we don't want them. That's not what I'm saying. The want is still there, but the actual impact on, on measurable performance things, performance, productivity, those sorts of things diverge about $75,000 a year. And then you have to lean on your internal motivators. Now, there are five major internal motivators, and they're actually all designed to work in an order, and they're designed to be built on top of each other. We start with curiosity. Curiosity is our foundational, most basic motivator. And you, first of all, what's the big deal about a motivator? Like, why do we care about internal motivators? What they give us is focus for free. Brain is 2% of our body weight, consumes 25% of our energy at rest. When we're paying attention to something, it's even more. Think about how hard is it to pay attention to something that you're not particularly interested in. It's tough. It's difficult. You burn out very quickly. 
research shows that most of us can't sustain attention on stuff that we're not interested in for much more than eight, nine minutes at a time. And that's really good. So curiosity, though, think about stuff you're curious about. You just pay attention to it automatically. You get focus for free. That's the big deal. Curiosity is actually designed to be built into passion. So if you can find the intersection of multiple curiosities, you literally get the recipe for passion. If you can attach that intersection to a cause greater than yourself, then you start to get purpose. Once you have purpose, well, what do you need? Oh, you need the freedom and the autonomy to pursue that purpose. Okay, once I have that, what do I need next? Mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose well. Now, there are all kinds of other internal intrinsic motivators we could talk about, but those are the big five. They get you the largest kind of biological response, and they'll get you the farthest. And if you start there, you're really cooking. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, how the hell do I do that? www.passionrecipe.com. This is where Art of Impossible starts. We turned it into a free interactive workbook for anybody because so many people were like, oh my God, how do I cultivate passion? How do I get purpose? That's so important to me and I don't know how to find it. There's actually a formula. It doesn't happen overnight and do not be impatient with the process. You literally do not want to be two years into a passion or purpose to discover, oh shit, it was only a phase. That is massively demotivating. It's really hard to get back into the fight after that happens. So start slowly, but work your way through the sequence, but that's there for anybody listening. Very insightful. And we'll be sure to include that tool in the show notes as well. So we start with curiosity, multiple curiosities come together to form a passion. Then we tie in an external mission that generates purpose. And you started going really fast after that. So walk me through one more time. Then you need autonomy, which is the freedom to pursue your purpose. If you go into Art of Empowerment, we actually, there have been studies on how much autonomy you actually need. And it's a lot less than you would even think. If you can divide it up daily, but it's literally about an afternoon a week is enough to sort of really start harnessing this motivator. But you can sort of do it in smaller chunks than that if you want to go after it on a daily basis. And once you have autonomy, you need to start walking the path to mastery. You need to start layering in all the skills that you're going to need to master your craft. And I like to think about this. This isn't exactly an art of impossible. It's there in bits and pieces. I like to surround a problem. So when I'm trying to learn something, I want to go 360 degrees around it. I'm going to learn every aspect of it. So I sort of have 360 degree expertise to pursue mastery kind of thing and really get it working for me as a motivator. And of course, once you get the big five layered in, goals are next. And you probably covered that a bunch on the show at the times. The research shows you need three tiers of goal setting. You need a set of mission level goals for your life. You need high, hard goals, which are all the small steps you would need to take to accomplish your mission. So if your mission is, I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe, your high, hard goals would be things like, I want to go to college and get a degree in creative writing. I want to take a job on a newspaper and learn how to cover a story. I want to write a book on cooking or healthcare or take your pick, right? Those are high, hard goals, usually things that are one to five year timeline horizon goals. And then you need clear goals. And these are the daily to-do lists. And there's specific ways to set clear goals lists to maximize their effectiveness and all that stuff. But literally, it's what do I do today that is going to help me achieve my hard goals? You want your high hard goals lined up with your mission level goals, which are, again, your purpose, right? You need all of those 
set sort of in that order to maximize your biology. And again, big deal here for motivation, just at the high, hard goal level. This is not my work. This is Locke and Latham, sort of the godfathers of modern goal setting theory. But they found that just setting a proper high, hard goal gives you an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. So think about that for a second. If an eight-hour day is your baseline, that's like getting two free hours of work simply for building the right context around the work you're going to do anyways. So insightful. And I love how all of those things fit together. And it's so important. It's amazing when you look at people, how often there's either a total disconnect or just nothing to do with their daily activity and their goals or their hopes and dreams and tying those things together with daily action items that are pointing you in the direction of your short and medium term goals and ultimately your long term mission goals can be transformative for your life. I think you got to take it one step further, which is I think you have to really think about your goals and your tiered goals and especially your mission level goals. These are filters. We often tend to think as people that we're defined by our yeses, those things we're saying yes to, right? They stick with us a little bit more. I made this decision, but we're very defined by our no's, very, very, very much. And mission level goals, for example, are a first filter, right? I have three sort of mission level goals in my life. And every day I try to take one step towards each of those. Then there's, you know, another category of things in my life that is like all the stuff I have to do to support the mission level goals. Then I've got friends and family who I want to tend to on a daily basis. And one other thing that I do, and those six categories are my first filter. Meaning if shit comes my way, I don't care how big the opportunity is. If it doesn't slot into those six categories, I pass. Predominantly because if it doesn't slot into those six categories, I know if I really want to perform at my best, everything's got to be aligned. All my intrinsic motivators have to be pointing in the same direction. They got to be tied in with my values and my strengths. And everything's got to be moving towards the same direction. And when they are, peak performance is about just showing up and doing the thing. A lot of the hard work happens odd. I mean, you still have to do the hard work. Don't get me wrong, of course. But a lot of the stuff that you would be fighting against normally is just stop fighting against and get farther faster. That makes a lot of sense. So the idea is essentially that I love the notion of your goals as filters and the mechanism for you to say no to things. And this idea that you're describing is essentially the notion that if we really want to be peak performers, every single card in the deck needs to be stacked in our favor. And if you're doing things that maybe fit 30% or 60% or 70% of your goals and your values, you're never going to be able to get every factor stacked in your favor. And you're ultimately not going to be able to perform at the potential that you could perform at if you had everything in alignment. And let me give it to you another way too, because this isn't in the book at all, but we run this sometimes with our clients. And I think since we're on this topic, it's another useful filter because I think people just don't we make the mistake of not trusting our own history. So make a list. If you're going to get distracted, right, if you're going to get distracted off your mission level things, off these first filters, you better make sure it's a damn great distraction. So make a list of your top 10 pleasures, the things in your life. Like if you're going to get distracted, get distracted by a serious hedonic pleasure, something that really, really, really works. And so for me, I got a list. And I got my six filters and then I got 10 things that are the great pleasures. And so I only literally, if it doesn't fit into the six categories, if it's going to distract me from one of those and it doesn't fit in these 10 filters, it's a total no, because then I'm just clearly, literally wasting my time. 
I'm not aiming towards my goals or my values or who I am. And I'm not even aiming towards a distraction that's worth a damn because I would rather save up my distraction time for something that matters that I really love. Yeah, that's such a great insight. And the older I get, the more the advice and the guidance of your life is really determined by your nose means more and more to me. Joan Didion once said, one of my favorite authors, she once said, when you're young, you think you can pay any sort of emotional tax and it'll all be worth it in the end because you're gaining the experience. You get to a certain age and you're just like, oh, wow, that's just a lot of emotion. There's no real experience there. I had that roller coaster before. I'm just going to skip that this time around. So bringing us back to tying this into the framework for peak performance, I want to look at across the things that you've shared so far, where do you typically see people falling short in their daily lives or going wrong with starting to put some of these practices in place? So the stuff we've been talking about onboarding wise, everything we've come up to now, I think is sort of the onboarding stuff. And biggest place people go wrong there is they don't spend so there's a process for exploring the intersections of curiosities and really playing there. And what the research shows is that, first of all, we have no idea what we're going to be good at or like in advance. We have to do it. So one, people also, if they're like, oh, wow, I'm really curious about this thing and I'm really curious about this thing and they intersect right at this weird place. Let me start exploring that. If it requires any skill onboarding, you know what I mean? People get derailed by the fact that learning anything, you're bad until you're better. It's going to suck no matter what. So that's the obvious one that derails people. But the other side of that, I think, is worse. And you see this a lot with go-getters, entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera, is they want it to happen overnight. And literally, the biology is not designed to work overnight. It will not. It doesn't happen that way. So people at the front end of a quest to get to passion, right? I say, what does passion look like, Matt? And you're like, give me an example of athletic passion. The average answer you're going to get is LeBron James windmill scowling his way to a rim shattering dunk in the NBA finals. That's what passion looks like. And your passion just looks like a little kid in a backyard shooting a basketball through a hoop, hoping it's going to go through, right? That's what it looks like on the front end. And we forget that. So people get derailed by the fact that they're like, wow, this doesn't feel like passion. This, I'm curious. They don't realize that passion is earned over time, one step at a time, one little victory at a time. And it takes a lot to get there and it takes a lot to find out what's real, what's just a phase and what's not. So impatience derails a lot of people. They don't trust the process and they come out early. When do we know when to keep going with a curiosity versus when to cut our losses and move on to something else that has our interest? That's an open question. And I have never lost any of my curiosities. Some of them have gone away for years at a time and then come back because I've sort of learned everything up to a certain point. I got to go learn a bunch of other stuff. So I don't necessarily know if they ever go away. But when I notice things are wrong is when I'm working really hard day after day to pay attention for a very long stretch of time. And learning is always going to be sort of unpleasant. And Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's at Stanford, we do a lot of work with, and he says something brilliant. He says, you know, one of the biggest differences between all peak performance and everybody else is that peak performers know it's always crawl, walk, run. 
and most everybody else gets into the situation and goes, yeah, man, I'm not really into crawling and I'm not really the walking kind of gal. I'm going to start at a jog. Okay. Just how do I start at a jog? And they burn a lot of energy trying to figure out where are the shortcuts? How do I get farther? You know what I mean? And peak performers just know it's going to be crawl, walk, run, and there's going to be long stretches of unpleasant on the way and that you shouldn't really start judging things until you really got a little bit of, you know, not total mastery, but you're starting to get a sense of how to think inside of the thing. And that's when I think it's enough. And the way I explain it in the book is there's a process in the learning chapter I talk about as sort of the five books of stupid. It's a knowledge acquisition process. It's how basically to learn anything you want to learn. It's not fast, but I have found that if you take that process through to the end, by that point, you now know enough to determine, hey, is this right for me or should I move on? Give me a brief synopsis of that learning process. So the book is probably the science of impossible, except I'm a real stickler for words that mean what they're supposed to mean. And 95% of the book is science. 5% is based on a lot of stuff that I've learned along the way and deployed with a lot of people, but we don't have enough research to call it science. So I'm calling it art. This is one of those components. But I was a journalist for a very long time and I was freelance. And this was back when magazines had fact checkers and fact checkers sort of got paid to make sure I was not screwing things up. And the way they sort of earned props with the editors was by proving writers wrong. So if I wanted to work for Time Magazine, for example, they could say, hey, Stephen, I need you to write about the neuroscience of goal setting, say. And I would know nothing about the neuroscience of goal setting. And I write about neuroscience, but this is new field, blah, blah, blah. And literally, there are people who are getting paid to figure out, did I fuck it up? And I won't work for them again if I screwed up too badly. So I have to learn it. I have to get it really right. And my ability to feed myself depends on it. And I covered very hard subjects. And I was, for a while, one of the busiest freelancers in America. So I was working for, in the end, it was 100 total publications, but everybody could imagine. So I was covering a lot of stuff, and I'd have to learn it and get to expert level very quickly. And this was the process I developed to do it. What I discovered is that it starts with what I call the five books of stupid. And again, you sort of want to follow your curiosity into a subject. So when you're starting to learn a subject, the first thing you care about is terminology. And the easiest way to learn the terminology is a friendly way. Find the simplest, most popular book on the subject. I'm talking about if you're interested in learning about the Vatican, this is when you start with Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code kind of thing, literally. You just want to learn the terminology in the world a little bit. The more natural curiosity you have, the more norepinephrine and dopamine are going to be in your system, the easier it is going to be to learn. You're going to learn without having to work so hard. So start simple, fast. You want to go through it as fast as possible. Next book up is slightly harder, right? This is like your Malcolm Gladwell level book, right? Let's say you want to learn about intuition. Blink, it would be a second book in the stack, right? This is popular book. It's not very hard. You're going to read it pretty quickly. You're going to learn a little bit more of the terminology. You're going to start to learn, oh, here's how experts think about this. And you're going to more importantly start to learn a little bit of the history of the subject. And I always tell people, pay attention to two things, vocabulary and history. Vocabulary meaning if a term shows up, 
don't write down every term and don't expect to understand everything you read and don't try to. You want to pay attention to only three things as you're reading all five of these books. Terminology that shows up three to five times and you go, what the hell does that word mean? Okay, it's important. Look it up. Every time you see it in print, say the definition to yourself. Predominantly because this is one of the things experts know and other people sort of learn the hard way is that 50% of most subjects are contained within the vocabulary of the subject. If you can learn the expert vocabulary, you know a lot of what the experts know about. And vocabulary like neuroscience, most of the vocabulary is literally like place names in the brain or ways things work. A lot of it is contained within, right? When I say anterior cingulate cortex, I'm literally giving you a location in the brain. It's not a fancy word for a thing. It's a location. It tells you if you know how to speak neural anatomy where something is. That's true in almost any subject. You also want to pay attention to the history. Why? Because our brains love narrative. We're cause and effect engines, right? We see things in the world and we go, how did that happen? And how do I make it happen again? Or how do I avoid it happening again? We do cause and effect naturally. We do storytelling naturally. If you have the narrative, science, for example, is always a voyage of discovery. What happened first, second, third, fourth, fifth, etc. Pay attention to that. You have the big Christmas tree. All the facts you learn are ornaments along the way. So if you have those two things, you're starting to be dangerous. And then just pay attention to anything that captures your attention. Where the things you're naturally curious about, that's where you stop and you pause and you take a note or you think or you write down something. Those are the notes you take. Don't take notes everywhere. Don't care if you don't get everything that's going on. Pay attention to those things. Third book is the first sort of technical book on the subject. This might be Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow if you're studying intuition, right? That's that book. Fourth book is the first really hard. This might be a textbook on the subject. And then the fifth book is usually a macroscopic book, something that looks into the future or the past so you can figure out where are the boundary conditions. This is sane. This is crazy. These are where the landlines lie. Maybe you're going to disagree with the experts, but you should know where people say the boundaries are. And I figure once you've gone through those five books, you often know enough to start asking experts questions. And that's when I start getting on the phone with people who really know what they're talking about and asking questions. It builds from there. But basically, I tell people once the experts are saying things to you like, oh, wow, that's a really good question, then you sort of know you're in the right place and you're starting to actually know what you're talking about. You're not yet an expert, but you're starting to be able to think inside the subject. And that's often enough to be able to judge, does this fit me right? Got it. That's a great explanation. I really like the methodology of breaking it down with book examples of how to start really simply and then start to get more and more technical. So after you've done that journey, that's when you think you can probably make a qualitative assessment of this field, this endeavor, this topic is something I enjoy. Yeah. Or- yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways. I mean, on a certain level, because you can spend a day studying something and feel like you're totally frustrated, right? You're not learning, you're not getting it, but you're still kind of deeply satisfied that you fought that battle. And we know what that feels like, right? Those are signs that even if you're not getting it, you're still in the right place. You know what I mean? Even though you're not learning a fucking thing, but your life is still feeling pretty meaningful, you're probably still playing in the right kind of place. It's those kinds of internal signals we're looking for. And a minute ago, you touched on something which you just said again 
which to me is a really important insight, which is this notion that peak performers understand that the journey contains parts where you're frustrated, where you're stuck, where you're angry, where you're crawling, where you're getting your butt kicked. And yet most average or underperformers don't understand that. They think they can go straight into running or jogging, et cetera. It's such an important insight. And it's more than you know. Okay, so let me give you a simple example. Flow, optimal performance. Most people think flow is a light switch. Like you're in the zone or you're not. It's not a light switch. It's actually a four-stage process. And each stage is underpinned by different changes in neurobiology. And you got to move through all four stages to get into flow and repeatedly get into flow. So like put a really big explanation point on this. But once a month, somebody comes up to me and says, oh, dude, you got to study me, man. I'm in flow all the time. and I used to actually kind of run away at that point because I didn't know what to do. And finally, it's happened so much that I've decided the best thing I could do is tell the truth. And I now tell the truth, which is, oh, yeah, you know, we got a word for that. We call that schizophrenia or mania. That's not healthy. You can't live in flow. It doesn't work that way. You have to go through the whole cycle. And parts of the cycle are very unflowy. In fact, to your exact point, the front end of a flow state is a struggle stage. Flow is what happens once we have automatized a bunch of behaviors. We can perform things automatically and the brain can start to combine this automatic action with that automated action to get a whole new level of performance. You still have to automatize that stuff. You still have to learn how to do it, right? And still going to be learning. And learning is funny because our working memory, the amount of stuff we can think about consciously at one point, if we're trying to learn something like a skill or our hard concepts, We can hold on to about four different things at once, and then we are literally frustrated by design. And in the struggle phase, you have to take yourself to the brink of frustration. Literally, it is a sign that you're moving in the right direction if peak performance is your goal. It still sucks on the inside, right? Like it just sucks. When you get best in the world, it still sucks. It's still hard. The emotions don't change. It's still an unpleasant experience, but once you know, oh, this unpleasant experience means I'm moving in the right direction because you have to take your brain to the point of almost overloaded and then sort of take your mind off the problem so your brain can pass it over to the unconscious and you can start to turn those actions into habits. That has to happen for peak performance and that's an unconscious process. So brink of frustration, and then turn it off. You got to let it go. Most people don't know that. So they don't realize that struggle is built in to the cycle. And in fact, we've got new research that we're doing that shows that even in those instances where there's not a long struggle phase, like you're out for a mountain bike ride, if you want to get into flow, there's always going to be a moment like where you're riding along on the trail and And suddenly the trail steepens and you're like, oh, crap, I actually have to really burn energy here. And you have a moment where you have to like lean in and grit your teeth and roar a little bit, even if it's internally to get into it. That moment, you actually may have to trigger the fight response to get into flow. Fight and flee, freeze. These are separate responses in the brain. And fight actually might be required to get into flow, meaning even at the micro scale, you may have to deal with that frustration and that struggle. So many really important learnings from that this idea of taking and if you look across any field whether it's chess whether it's surfing whether it's rock climbing anything you see the same pattern which is this notion of taking your actions and turning them into habits internalizing all of these learnings into the subconscious 
so that your conscious mind can process the nuances, whether it's an MMA fight or a boxing match or a poker match, anything, you can really see the experts aren't thinking about 99% of the stuff. It's already internalized. They're thinking about that 1% difference that you can't even see until you're years and years into the journey. That is absolutely correct. What's cool about flow, because it takes place after you've mastered a bunch of stuff and because it's optimal performance, I like to say it's 360 degree creativity, meaning within the activity and when you're doing a thing that you've got that level of expertise at and you're in flow, whatever direction you go in is open to you because you're performing at your best. You've got 360 degree sort of creativity, which is my definition of what is mastery. It's the ability to be creative in 360 degrees off the thing that you're trying to be a master at. The other theme you talked about a moment ago, which is also really important, and correct me if you disagree with this characterization, but this notion that the struggles built into the learning cycle, this idea, it's almost like the concept of beginner's mind. When you go into anything, you have to understand that when you're starting it, you're going to be bad at it. And you have to learn to love that part of the struggle and not give up because you're not innately going to be an expert day one of trying to shot put or surf or whatever that activity might be. That is absolutely correct. That is really true. I mean, that's why also grit skills, right? Once you get goals, there are six layers of grit to add in next, right? Before you get to learning how to learn, we skipped over that point, but the buyout, there are six kinds of grit. If you're interested in peak performance, they all have to be trained independently in the beginning. In the end, you can start to blend them together. But in the beginning, you have to train them independently. And you don't want to start doing it. Once you get your intrinsic motivators sort of lined up and your goals dialed in, that alone will start producing more flow in your life. And once that happens, that's sort of a signal that you can start really leaning in and training grit. This was a thing that we used to run into at the Flow Research Collective all the time. It's one of the reasons that I wrote this book actually was this very thing is I was looking at the biology and I was like, man, if you just follow the biology, you would train grit before you started training people in flow because flow is great. It's optimal performance. It feels amazing. But if you haven't trained in grit and I start increasing the amount of flow in your life, sooner or later, the flow is going to go away. You're going to get to a struggle phase that's just too hard, too challenging, and take a while to learn the new skills, to level up, whatever it is, right? And if you don't have the grit skills layered in, man, I've just turned up the amount of flow in your life, the happy juice, and then I've cut it off. It's bad. Our clients, when this was happening to them, were pissed, right? They're training us to get more flow, and they're getting more flow, and then it's going away. And I kept trying to figure out, well, guys, because they don't have the grit skills. There are going to be times without flow and you need the grit skills, but you can't train grit effectively until people are starting to get more flow in their lives because it's just miserable to train grit. We are so trainable. We can get so gritty. It's amazing. It's amazing how gritty we can get. It's amazing how easy it is actually to train grit. But the downside, it always feels terrible period. Like it just feels terrible. That's what training grit means. And a lot of training grit is about learning that you can perform at your best, no matter how bad it feels. And then step two, learning you can trust that no matter how bad it feels, you're still going to be able to perform at your best because you've done it enough times. 
And those are two separate things, right? It's really easy to go out on any given day and be gritty. Oh, I just got to push harder than I would normally push. But what it really takes to get gritty is we have to believe in our own grit. And we're slow learners when it comes to ourselves, right? Like you have to prove something to yourself over and over and over and over again before your brain is going to go, oh, you really are this gritty. So if like this is a life-threatening situation, I know you got this. That's sort of what your brain is looking for when it's sort of training grit. It's looking for the signal that you are gritty enough to handle this shit no matter what happens because then you don't have to worry, but then you don't have to produce any anxiety when you encounter that level of challenge because your brain goes, oh, you got this. You're this gritty. That's what you're sort of aiming for when you're training grit. And it takes a while. I know we could talk about this for an hour, but practically in a few minutes, perhaps, what are some of the methodologies for training grit? The body's funny. When it comes to grit, you've got to start physically. You cannot start anyplace else. You have to start with whatever activity you do for exercise. And if you're not exercising regularly, forget peak performance because it's too hard to control the anxiety levels in your body. Gratitude works really well for that. Mindfulness works very well for that, but exercise sort of like the killer app for stress. And so regular exercise is really important to peak performance and it's an opportunity to train grit. And literally if yesterday you did sets of 10, today you're going to do one set of 11, right? And tomorrow maybe two sets of 11 and the day after that three sets of 11 and slowly over time. And once you start discovering, once you start getting physically gritty, you can start training cognitive grit. Like, okay, in the morning, I used to allocate 90 minutes for my most important task, and I could focus intently for 90 minutes, and tomorrow I'm going to try for 95, right? That's cognitive kind of stuff. Once those things are starting to lay in a little bit, then I think thought control is the next level. But grit to really take charge of your brain's kind of normal, natural negative bias and the voice in your head that's another reason that mindfulness matters. You've got to kind of get that separation between emotion and feeling, emotion and actual reaction, and start really working on your thoughts. Once you're at that level, the next thing you want to start training is the grit to be your best when you're at your worst. And this is an entirely different kind of grit. So let me give you an example of what that might look like. I have to give speeches and when I write a new speech, I'll write the speech, I'll practice it a handful of times, you know, a couple times alone, a couple times friends in the room, easy audiences, whatever, I'm tuning it up, I'm getting it right, and then there's a day that I'll wait till like I didn't get enough sleep the night before, I work 10, 12, 15 hours, I go to the gym, I get a hard workout, and I come home, I grab my dogs, and I go hike up the mountain behind my house, and I deliver my speech. And I do that once before I give any speech in public because if I can give a speech while hiking up a mountain and exhausted, I can give a speech under any conditions. And as a guy who travels around the world and gives speeches for a living, any conditions happen. I've had everything you could possibly imagine go wrong, and I can stay calm in any conditions. And I'm like, yeah, whatever you got, it's not going to be as hard as hiking up a mountain. I'm training to be my best when I'm at my worst. That's an example. You only want to start playing with that once you've layered in the other ones. Once you've got that going on, it's the grit to train up your weaknesses, which are really unpleasant, but are next. Then it's the grit to really start using fear as a primary motivator. 
and start really working with fear. Fear is a fantastic motivator, but only if you become very gritty along the way, otherwise it's gonna win biologically. But if you can really get a handle on it and start working with your fear, it's fantastic. Think about all the focus you get for free when something scares you, but it takes a little while to get there. And then the last one, most important one, this is really for peak performers, is the grit to recover. For peak performers, we don't like to slow down, stop, rest, relax, do any of that. That feels like you're wasting time, and peak performers have a very hard time with that. So recovery for peak performers is a grit skill. And if you're really going to perform at your best, the research shows passive recovery, TV and a beer does not work. You need an active recovery protocol, Epsom salt baths, long saunas, massage, foam rollers, take your pick, restorative yoga protocol, breath work. All these things are active recovery protocols, and they're hard, man. At the end of my workday, I've worked 10, 12, 13 hours a day. The last thing I want to do is get into a sauna and do 20 minutes worth of breath work. That's exactly what I try to do almost every day because it allows me to keep going at this high level. It's the grit to recover. So those are the six levels of grit and the order which appears we need to train them. So many good insights. I'll just leave this one statement you said here. We don't even need to get into it, but it's so important, which was if you're not exercising regularly, forget about peak performance. So many insightful lessons there. We could do a whole interview just on grit. I want to ask a different question or think about this in another way and put this all into some context. All the lessons you share about peak performance, et cetera, I see very clearly how you apply this to mastering a lot of skills. And by that, I mean Let's say you wanted to be the world's greatest chess player. I think I see how to apply these protocols. You want to be the world's greatest power lifter. I see how to apply these protocols. You want to be the world's greatest skydiver, whatever. I see how to do that. When you start to get into more business-related or abstract concepts, let's say you want to be the world's greatest leader of a nonprofit. I always say personality doesn't scale, biology scales. So what works for me will definitely not work for other people. But I will also tell you on this tip, I set out to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe. Now, I am smart enough to understand that there is no such thing, but don't kid yourself. I'm ferociously competitive in everything I do, and I've wanted to be the greatest writer. At the Flow Research Collective, we set out to be the best evidence-based peak performance training in the history of the universe. I don't do anything unless I can be best of the world at it, and I do a lot of business stuff. So all this stuff, and that was the point of this book really, is I wrote books about athletics. I've written books about all these various things. This is the book that I wrote for everyone. At the Flow Research Collective, we train a thousand people a month, and I would say 80% of them are C-suite executives. So this stuff, it's very business focused in my mind and very applicable in business. Where it gets a little tricky though is at the organizational level. I always say that at the organizational level, that's where we go from actual data, science, into case studies. With an individual, right, I know that your biology works a specific way, but what's the biology of an organization? And is Microsoft's biology different than Patagonia's or GE or the corner dry cleaner store? Those are interesting questions that I don't know if we have enough answers to yet. So that's where it starts to get a little more abstract, but I don't think the principles change at all. Yeah, that's a really good insight. Do you think another component of this is, and for example, being the greatest writer of all time, do you think about breaking that down into almost 
component pillars or micro skills that you work on? For example, I love the idea of speaking, right? You're working on your speech while you're giving a hike. That's a fantastic yeah. instance. I mean, I can answer this. There's so many different stories I can tell you, but the easiest one I could tell you is this lesson is in the book in a section where I talk about sustaining creativity over a career. But it was one of the first lessons I ever got taught. And I got taught it in grad school, but one of my first mentors, who was a guy named John Barth. And John is often considered the godfather of like American metafiction, an entire genre of fiction that was sort of very dominant in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I really was interested in it. It's a very complicated, you do fancy shit with language. Long story short, very fancy stuff. And we were in his office one day. We were talking about my favorite book, one of the most complicated books ever written. It was a book by Thomas Pynchon called Gravity's Rainbow. It's got like 800 characters in it. And we're talking about, he's like, yeah, it's the fanciest book you've ever seen. But in the middle of the damn book, there is a 50-page section that is told in the plainest English known to man. And it's because it's where the central themes of the book are. And Bar's point to me is he looked at me and said, you can never have too many arrows in your quiver. And what he meant was surround your craft. And when I train writers, I always show them a graphic of my career. Like this is the point that I first got paid six figures and seven figures for books. I mean, like really lay it out. I also show them the two different times in my career I went bankrupt and all the different things I've had to know how to write along the way to get to where I am, which you could say where I am, wherever I am, but just to get to wherever I am, I've had to learn how to write grants and marketing copy and advertising copy and song lyrics and scripts and books and nonfiction books and novels and poems. And I could go on for like the next 25 minutes on all the different shit I've had to learn how to write. And they're all different skills. I mean, some of them cross over, but as a general rule, I had to crawl, walk, run in every one of these places. and. That's just really fundamental. That level of hunger, if you're really interested in playing this game, you got to bring that because if you're interested in being best of the world at something, you're competing with people like me who are going to play it at this level in this way. So it's worth thinking about that at least. Great examples and a really insightful way of thinking about that. For somebody who wants to start taking action, whether it's training their grid and finding their curiosities, et cetera, what would one action item be or action step you would give them to start implementing these ideas in their life today? I'm going to come at this from a really weird angle. I'm going to give you something that you probably didn't expect. And this is not the answer to any of the shit you just asked me about. But when people say, what's the single thing that I could do? I used to say my general answer to what are the three things I can do Monday morning is fuck you. Because there's no three things you can do Monday morning. Because if you're interested in this, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, repeat. But I will say if there's one lever that you can reach for that you're probably not reaching for because it's so counterintuitive. So everybody has what we call a primary flow activity. So flow, those moments of uninterrupted concentration where you get so sucked in and what you're doing, everything else just disappears. We all have a primary one, meaning it's that thing you did growing up as a kid that you always got lost in. Like, here's how you lost an afternoon. Maybe it was video games. Maybe it was playing football with your friends. Maybe it was going for hikes. Maybe it was collecting stamps or doing magic or learning to dance hip hop or whatever. We all have that thing. And as a general rule, as we become adults, that is the thing we stop doing because we get responsible and we have jobs and we have careers and we have 
lives and families and et cetera, et cetera. And the funny thing is, flow is a focusing skill. Shows up when all our attention is in the here and now, and it is trainable. It's a very particular kind of focus that is very trainable. And in its general sense, the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So if you go out on Monday and go skiing for an hour and drop into a flow state, you're actually going to have a better chance of getting into flow on Thursday at work, A, and B. This is not my work. This is true. Some model is at Harvard. But flow is a huge boost in creative problem solving, 400 to 700%, depending on whose numbers you're looking at. What Teresa discovered is that that heightened creativity will outlast the flow state, which can be a 90-minute experience as a rule, by a day, maybe two. So that in itself is reason to do it. The third reason is that when we drop into flow, it resets the nervous system. It flushes stress hormones out of our system, and it replenishes them with sort of feel-good, performance-enhancing neurochemicals that also boost the immune system. So as a general rule, this one activity, the thing that we probably stop doing, if we reintroduce it in our lives, it's going to make the biggest difference. And it's going to start rekindling on a lot of other energy. So it's very counterintuitive. But first of all, if you're interested in grit, any of those things, your primary flow activity is a great place to start training grit and training some of those other things that you're interested in. But this is the thing I would tell you to start doing. Stephen, what I'm hearing from you is that I need to be playing more video games. That Well, if that was your thing, <laughs> would be my thing, would not work for me. I wish it would work for me. It'd be so much easier. But yeah, I mean, if that was your thing, really, really, if that's what made your heart sore and really sucked you in and swallowed you whole, reboot it a little bit. A great suggestion and really cool insights. So Stephen, you've shared a couple of resources already, but where can people find you all of your tremendous work and everything that you're doing online. For the book, theartofimpossible.com. That's easy. Me, stephencotler.com. If you're interested in any of the flow stuff we've been talking about, flowresearchcollective.com. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Another fantastic conversation and really, really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Matt, I appreciate your interest. Thank you for having me back. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. 
Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.